This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. Are you looking to jumpstart a career that feels a little too stable or even stalled? Put your substantial skills to use in a new industry? Or re-enter the workforce after time away. Maybe you'd like to make a jump, but you feel stuck or aren't sure where to begin. Today, we're going to tell you how to get unstuck and launch a successful new career that works for you. And we're going to do this by talking with an unbelievable expert, one of our most beloved hosts and uh, colleagues here at Wharton. That beloved guest is none other than a familiar expert to business radio listeners, Dr. Dawn Graham. She's the host of Career Talk, which is live on Sirius XM every Thursday at noon, and director of career management for the Wharton School's executive MBA program. She's here to talk today about a new chapter in her own career. She's become an author with her new book called Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. But before we begin our conversation, I want to share a little bit about her and why we think she's so awesome. She is one of the country's leading career coaches with almost two decades of experience in, get this, recruiting, coaching, career management, leadership assessment, training, and business transformation. In her work here at Wharton, she partners with this population of really hard-driving, ambitious, talented business executives, most of whom are actually changing careers at the prime of their professional lives while vying for some of the world's most competitive and potent jobs. Dawn is a licensed psychologist, a seasoned member of the corporate community herself, having worked at Arthur Anderson, AT&T, and Lee Hecht Harrison. And she shares her wisdom with all of us, not just our students, through her writing for Forbes, her fabulous radio show, and here on Women at Work Today. So, Dawn, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, that was so fabulous. It made me feel so good being here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, we couldn't be more thrilled. When you were on last time, it wasn't just that I felt like our listeners learned so much from you. Selfishly, I did too. You were able to, you know, help me navigate questions I've had my whole working life. Well, I appreciate that. I learned so much from being here too, and I love you know, talking to listeners, and I think we are here for the same reason, Laura, to help people be empowered, specifically women. Absolutely. So one of the things that I find so special about you and your work in general, but also comes across in this amazing new book, is that you are a psychologist and an expert business coach. You have both of these things that are coming together. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about some of the nitty-gritty tactics and strategies, talk to me about where your training as a psychologist is coming out in this book. Yes. So interestingly, I went back to become a licensed psychologist later in my career, so after working for more than a decade, because it became very apparent to me that a lot of what happens in business interactions when people are involved is psychology and specifically in the job search. A lot of it is the bias and stereotypes and you know our emotions and all of this stuff getting wrapped up to, into our actions and decisions. So I decided to go back into school to learn psychology because it is such an integral part of the job search. And I feel like that comes through the whole book because what I've realized is that when you understand how humans interact, you've got a huge advantage in the job search. Also in understanding how we react, like part of what really struck me as I was reading it is you spoke to the fears we have, mm -hmm. the things that get in the way of our moving forward on making change happen while decoding what's happening on the other side. It's really true. I think when people go to make a switch, and usually this happens mid-career, and that's the other place where psychology really comes in, because mid-career, we don't just have to worry about our career. Now we have our families. Now we have you know, maybe aging parents. Maybe we have all of these other factors. Maybe we, we are in a community where we're in our, our church or other things going on, and you're trying to juggle all these things and have a successful career. Again, where psychology comes in really helpful is that piece of it. So 
You know, come to to loop back um, to your question. Yeah, we, I mean, things are so complicated when you're looking at a job search, and when you're looking at a switch in particular, I think it's important for people to understand all of these factors and to kind of step back. And this book provides a roadmap to do that. It really does, and that that core issue of how can we understand when we're making decisions around our emotions, and when it's actually misinformation, and when it's useful information. Mm-hmm. And our careers are so wrapped up in our identity. And, and, you know, as you're thinking about fear, one of the things that I think people get really excited about when they think about making a career change is I'm getting out of this position where I feel stuck. And a lot of people know when they're done with a job or with a career. A lot of people know I'm fed up, I'm burned out. This isn't what I want to do. Or, wow, I've seen this new career opportunity that looks so interesting and exciting to me and it didn't exist when maybe I got on my career ladder And it's exciting, but then all of a sudden when you start to step into that process, that's when the fear comes up because you start to realize what you're going to lose. And for so many of us, our career is tied into our identity so tightly that it starts to get terrifying when you step into a new title or a new role or maybe you're possibly going to drop in salary or drop in status. And even though where you're going seems very exciting and meaningful to you, this this idea of loss aversion, this idea of what you're going to lose in this change starts to overpower you and you start to get a little bit scared. So let's back up and talk about what are some of the motivations to switch? What are the patterns you see around people switching? And then I want to kind of decode how we go about that process. Mm-hmm. So the great thing is, is we're in a market now where, where switchers are, are becoming the norm, not the exception. I mean, you've, you've heard gig economy, you've heard hybrid careers, portfolio careers, we have side hustles, we have all of these <laughs> things. People are staying in careers an average of, of 4.2 years. So whoa, 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 whoa. Four point to me is it. I remember somebody explained what's a career. Mm-hmm. It's not something you plan. It's something you look back upon. Mm-hmm. And that a career is like 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. People are having four year long careers. They are, and they're you know with technology and the world changing. I mean, you think about. Things that exist today in terms of the career world and fields and professions didn't even exist five years ago. And, and this is where a lot of the hybrid careers come. So so it's not just finance or technology. Now it's fintech and it's not just healthcare. You know, now you have to, to layer on you know, user experience and healthcare. So there's these these hybrid careers, which makes it very ripe for switchers, especially if you're interested in doing new things and doing meaningful work. The challenge, Laura, that comes in is that Technology hasn't caught up with the hiring process. What that means is that with applicant tracking systems and with other kind of quick matching AI, you know, artificial intelligence and all of these these secret algorithms that are supposed to match us with the best candidates are actually weeding out switchers because they don't have the the exact title or they don't have five years in data analytics or these specific skills. So while the market is ripe and people are switching more frequently, the hiring practices hasn't haven't caught up, which is exactly why I wrote this book, because I don't want that that the audience who is very capable and able to make this switch to be deterred because they're not making traction using traditional job search methods. So I want to make sure I've processed all this because there's a lot of important information in what you just said. So for many of us who are well into our careers writ large, you know, the culmination of all the jobs and roles that we have. Um, in that kind of lifetime process of work, we're going to have sub-careers mm-hmm. that in, in this kind of context is really about um, when skills and opportunities and work have aligned so that they make, they seem like a clear path or trajectory. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about switching, it's about how do you shift to a different trajectory? It is. And, and you know, it's different and it's not. And you had talked about what careers have meant traditionally. And that that model has shifted. So career comes from, you know, way back when a, a word that actually meant road. And that was path <laughs> and it's linear and it's it's uh, progressive and it has to do with your identity and you make more money, you get more rewards. And it was but it, it's linear. But it, it was linear. It, it is no longer linear. And that's, you know, if you think about it, that's because a lot of the careers that, that people started in don't exist today or they've morphed so much that they don't even look like they did when right. they started. So reinvention is so important to consistently look around at the market, look at your skills, look at your interests and say, I need to, to reinvent myself. So it's linear in the sense that we now have this career story that we create, but it's it's not necessarily one ladder we stay on. We kind of, you know... We kind of go from ladder to ladder. That's a beautiful pair of metaphors. So if we think about it, is what's the story of our work lives? Mm-hmm. And 
what are we working on at a given point? It's not one single path from beginning to end. Right. And as we switch to working on different things, it's a way to create a whole other dimension and road within our career. Mm-hmm. It's really true. And you, you kind of have to. Like, it, this isn't even optional anymore. And, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people, you know, start to get upset about this. Well, you know, the company should look at my career and they should help me manage the career. Um, but it's equally as hard for companies to predict what kind of needs they're going to have. And so they're struggling with this as well, Laura, which is why uh, you want to be empowered to manage your own career because you want to be in, in front of those opportunities, you want to have the agility and the amb- like to deal with ambiguity and to whatever the road turns into to be able to navigate it. Right. And so that things that we start to look for instead of that one linear path is mm-hmm. where are we growing? Where are we making an impact? Where are we learning new skills? Where are we happy? Where are we having the life that we mm-hmm. want? Which may include making a lot of money or making less money but having more time. It seems like there's a whole range of variables that we get to consider when we step out of that linear way of thinking. There are so many variables. And while, while compensation will always be important to people, that's that's not going to go away, people have started to realize that having meaningful work, I mean, you spend so much time, especially in the U.S. I mean, we, we spend more hours than, than similar economies at our jobs. And worse, we get, we get fewer days of vacation, and we don't even take all those vacation days. So when you think about how many of your waking hours you're putting into your profession, I think people deserve to enjoy them and to find satisfaction (laughs) in them. Absolutely. Not to mention that if what we want to do is continue to grow, continue to have a vital career, whatever work that includes, it means that we have to be open to changing environments and roles and seizing new opportunities. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you're going to find yourself obsolete. Yes. And that it's not just seizing new opportunities. I think a big message in your book was how you put yourself on the path to create or be in front of new opportunities. Yeah, they're you, not going to fall in your lap. They're not. Um, they, you know, and, and on the rare occasion that they do, is it the opportunity that you want? I mean, because sure, you may get opportunities, but but this book is really about creating, as you use that word, the path you want. You have that ability. And I think once you switch your mindset and get out of the the mindset of the company's going to do it for me or they're going to teach me the skills I need to know or they're going to give me the promotion when I'm ready, all of a sudden you feel much less stuck in in what's in front of you and you can kind of create your own buffet of opportunities that that you can pick and choose from. So for somebody who is... Um, and I don't know if I should lump this all together, so stop me. But for somebody who's ready for a switch, either somebody who they're not going to advance anymore and they don't feel like they're growing, um, they've been doing the same thing for a long time and they're ready for something new um, or they they want to enter new industries, like mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons why people want to change. Is it the same first steps for everybody or is it different depending on what your motivation is? So I think it, the first step for everybody really needs to be to assess where you are and where the market is. I, I talked to um, to our students here about three things. You need to understand your skills and abilities, your interests and the market. And the market's the one a lot of people overlook because you need to understand how competitive it is, where you fit into that market. And you always, regardless of your reasoning for change, you need to know where you're going to, not that you're running from. And this is so important to your strategy because any hiring manager wants to bring somebody on who's hungry, who's motivated, who has a reason for making this, who's committed to making this switch. And if you're running from something – you're not going to have very powerful stories. No, it's a very different thing to have candidates in front of you, one of whom says, I think that what you're doing here is amazing and I want to be part of making that happen mm-hmm. versus somebody who said, well, I was someplace terrible, so I'm ready to move on. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't say that, most people would hopefully not say that, but I can tell you <laughs> as a rec- yeah, you never know. As a recruiter, I can sense that. Yes, you feel it. Mm-hmm. It's such a different feeling when somebody is is running towards you than when when somebody you could tell is 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 running from something. Now you talked before about how a lot of recruitment happens in automated system digitally mm-hmm. without ever meeting a candidate. We also know, I think I learned this from you at the last time you were on the show, what a small percentage of jobs actually get filled that way. Yes. So what are kind of red flags that we should be watching out for when we're going out there to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up to be ignored? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people 
who haven't been in a job search go with what they know and a lot of what people know right now is is okay there's these big job boards I'm going to apply and I seem to have most of the skills so I'm going to get a call and it doesn't happen that way and the book switchers really teaches you to bypass that entire process because here's the thing that that process works for some traditional candidates who may have the background and expected skills uh, that a company wants it could work but if you're a switcher, it's not going to work because you're going to get spit out by these these applicant tracking systems and these matching systems, and you're never going to get seen by human eyes, which means you're never going to get an opportunity to demonstrate the skills that you bring to the table, which is what you need to do. You need to get in front of a human so you can show right. them. It's ironic that you can't reveal what you've got because you can't get through that mm-hmm. those first stages of the process. By the way, I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And my guest is the amazing Dr. Dawn Graham, Director of Career Management for the Wharton School's Executive MBA Program, um, host of her own show, Career Talk, and author of the new book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. If you'd like to join in the conversation or have a question for Dawn, give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So I have a particular type of switcher. Yes. That I'd like to talk about. Okay. Not surprisingly, it's the it's the mom mm-hmm. who stepped out of the workforce, mm-hmm. either part-time or full-time. And let's just say for the sake of argument, this is a parent, but we'll talk about mom right now, okay. who um, has an advanced degree. Let's say had 10 years of professional experience. Mm-hmm. Was at the top of her game, mm-hmm. but stepped out to take care of her family. And now it's time to reenter, mm-hmm. um, often in a landscape where the job she had, the work she did, the tools she used may be fundamentally different. Yes. But she knows she's ready to come back in, and she also knows she's not going to get any traction just submitting a resume through a system. Well, she's got a big head start just knowing that, Laura, <laughs> then, because it's very easy to sit there at midnight and just shoot your resume off and, and feel productive when, in fact, it actually drains your energy. We all have a finite amount of energy. And if you're doing this and you're getting your hopes up because you see the perfect job and then you don't hear anything or you, you get oh, a form Oh, it's true. Letter, it's an emotional roller it's coaster. Horrible. The job, let me just say, the job search is horrible. It's it rejection. Stinks. It's yeah. ghosting. It's ambiguous. It's like, like dating. It, yeah. It, yep, it, they're both they're both bad. <laughs> That's a whole another show, but they're both bad in, in very similar ways. Yeah. So what I really want people to do, and what I try and empower them to do in this book, is to not waste their precious energy doing the wrong thing. And the book talks about these these job switch killers, which drain your energy and, and kind of convince you that this isn't the right thing. So first off, I'm very glad this this fictional person is not just shooting resumes off. So similar to what we talked about before, first you have to figure out where you're running to, and for somebody who's been out of the workforce for a number of years, you probably have great skills, but you have to first figure out, do you still want to do what you did before? Because it may have morphed so much that it's not interesting anymore. Or maybe there's new careers out there that weren't in existence when you stepped away from the job force. So looking at those, I think step one is really doing your homework, finding out what what is my field doing now? What has changed? Where do I fit? And what's the market like? So again, that goes for everybody. And then one of the things is building your network. And I know this word comes up a lot when it comes to job search and people roll their eyes with this. But I talk about creating ambassadors in the book. And the fact is the most creative, the most interesting, the best jobs rarely get to the big job boards. And so the cool thing is, is that 2 million jobs a month are open Every month because people voluntarily work, walk away from their roles. That's a lot of jobs out there. There's no way one person, even if you're on the internet 24-7, can field all of those jobs. So if you create ambassadors, if you have people out there who know your value, know what you bring to the, the job market and can be bringing information back to you but also passing you on to their network, you are creating opportunities essentially while you sleep because these people are out there doing that my work for last, you. My current role and my last role both came that way. Mm-hmm. I didn't find them on a job board. It was matchmaking from somebody I knew. Yep. For roles that I didn't even know existed. And here's an easy thing you can do right now today if you're listening, whether you're stepping back into the job force or you're just you're thinking about a new job. Make sure, because I, I will tell you, I'm an introvert, and networking is not 
natural for me. So I know a lot of people are saying, oh, yes, but yes, but hey, it's not natural for me. This is something very easy you can do right now today. Make sure the people who care about you, who love you, who are in your life, your friends, your neighbor, your your classmates, your former roommate, your, your parents, your cousins, whoever those people are, know specifically in one or two lines the value you add in your job. So what you do. And I'm not talking about that I, I work at Apple or I work at Comcast. Right, so it's not saying I'm an executive director. No, it's what, what do I that? do that yeah. actually matters? So people probably know that. Well, right. well, Laura works at Wharton and you know she's an executive director. Well, what the heck does that mean, though? Can you speak intelligently to somebody else about Laura in a way that says this is the value she adds? Right. And I would be willing to bet you... 90% of the people in in your life, the people you stand next to at the soccer games every week, the parents you're talking to, cannot talk about your value in one or two sentences. My own parents. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Same here. It's like, yeah, my daughter's at Wharton. I, maybe she's a teacher. I don't know. <laughs> right. She's and, on but, the radio. And it was actually a great exercise because one day my mother said, no, I really don't understand. Explain it to me so I could explain it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and it helped me boil it down. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky. My mom edited my book. She's read it three times. So now she not only knows what I do, but she preaches it, which is great. That's but, I, terrific. but I will tell you, I will tell you, most people will not know the answer and they might be a little embarrassed. But but here's an opportunity. Next time you're on the sidelines at that soccer game, ask somebody else. You know, I really don't know what you do. I know you're you're an attorney or I know you are in project management. Tell me about what you do and spark that conversation because you will be shocked when the people who are your cheerleaders, who are your support, when they know what you do I guarantee they're going to be bringing you opportunities they're going to be talking to you about things they've read they're going to be giving you tips about articles or this hey I know you might be interested in this and that is going to open a world of opportunities you know it's true when I explained to a, a, an old friend of mine that what I do is I'm building a research center and my building it is about you know fundraising managing staff creating partnerships so that we can help individuals and organizations thrive And you can tell me later if I need more work on this. But even getting to that past executive director, Mm -hmm. like I'm building partnerships. I work with organizations and researchers to make this happen. And here's our goal. I started to get articles, questions. Are you interested in this kind of research? Can I connect you with so-and-so? You're right. It just followed as soon as I made it more real to the people I was talking Mm -hmm. to. So how do we do this? Now, in this case, it was an old friend of mine. We had this conversation over cocktails. I had a lot of room to use a lot of words Mm -hmm. to get to a point where he could understand it. How do we do this with our own skills when we don't have the benefit of cocktails with a friend, but it's maybe a quick email message or an attached resume and letter that somebody that we're sending to somebody to send to other somebody's? Mm-hmm. So first off, start with your core network. In most cases, you're, you're going to have time at the dinner table or time on the soccer sidelines or time with you know these individuals when you're meeting for coffee and just say, hey, you know, we've never really talked about this. Let's talk about this. And then you know, a lot of times that will inspire introductions to people they know. You know, I never knew you did that. My friend does something similar, would love to talk to you. I should put you guys in contact. And you'd be surprised at how this grows. And then you want to make sure this brand that you're creating is consistent. You want to make sure your LinkedIn, your social media, everything that, you know, because when somebody hears your name or you're going to coffee with them, they're going to look you up on LinkedIn. Does that reflect what you just shared in a way that people can understand it. So you want that tie to go through everything in your life so that people can start associating you with these things. By the way, um, you're listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Don Graham, Director of Career Management and the author of the newly released book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. Um, join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you at one 844 That's 844-942-7866. So there was a there are a bunch of different exercises in the book that I really loved. Mm-hmm. But one in particular that I like I can't wait to go home and do it myself, mm-hmm. but I also think is relevant here is the who am I map. Yes. Tell me about it. So the, the, one of the things that we often think about when, we, when somebody asks us, what do we do or what's our profession or, you know, we think about the most recent things in our lives. We think about our current job or maybe our current employer. And the Who Am I map really helps you lay out 
everything you've done. And when you start looking at everything you've done, you start to realize that you've got you've got a diverse background that you probably even forgot about. Different industries, different people you've dealt with, different situations, different um, technologies, different environments, different geographies in some cases. And like we were talking about earlier, the traditional career path is no more. What we have now, Laura, is a career story. And guess what? We all get to put together our career story. So you get to choose from everything you've done you know, in your professional life, in your volunteer life, in, you know, in your education and in your certifications, everything you've done, you get to pick and choose what you want to put into your career story to create your brand. And I think that's so important because a lot of people come to me, Laura, and say, hey, you know, I don't want to take this job because it's going to look bad on my resume. Or I took this job and it's completely not the right one, but if I leave, it's going to look bad on my resume. Here's the thing. Resumes are still around, but you don't have to worry about that because today it's about career story and you can create any story you like when you look at your entire background, which is again, why we're in such a great time for switchers. And it also um, suggests to me that when we write our resumes, we're not looking at our high school transcript. Right. Our resumes are things that we craft for different purposes so that we can tell a career story. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. When somebody comes to me and says, oh, Don, can you do my resume? The first thing I say is, who's your audience? And if you can't tell me your audience in very clear terms, I can't do your resume because I have to write a resume with you for someone for someone. It right. has to be for an audience. And it ha- you have to pick parts of your, you know, your who am I map of what's going to appeal to that audience. And an easy example is, you know, if you're going to buy a car, if you're if you're a young family and the salesperson is pitching the the stereo system and the, the speed and zero to 60 and, and all of these features, then that's not appealing to you. But if they start to pitch the, hey, it has 10 airbags and it has, <laughs> has washable upholstery and it has, you know, the things that a young family would want, that all of a sudden is going to appeal to you. And the fact is one car, one vehicle might have all of those features, but it's about picking the features that your audience is going to be most interested and in, putting that on your resume in your LinkedIn, in your, in your communications. And writing it in a way that that audience can understand mm-hmm. it. I'm excited to hear from Gary. So Gary, Gary, thanks so much for calling in. What's on your mind? It was my pleasure. And hi, Dawn. I listen to you ladies all the time, but it's always in delay. I rarely get the chance to call in. So I, I love the comment about switchers, about you know, the map to find out who you are. And I just share something that I think uh, works for women and men. I know this is a women's uh, career show, but I think this will work. Fifteen years ago, I, I left a, a large company, senior financial job, very positive frame of mind, and I struggled to write a resume with my coach because I wasn't bragging enough because I don't like to brag. And I sat down, and I, I literally got two, two whiteboards, and on the top of one whiteboard, I said, things I will never do again for a dollar. <laughs> and it was my cathartic release <laughs> board, okay? And in an hour, I vented. Okay, which was healthy. And then I said, things I'm good at. And I I was working in a a largely male, kind of a SEAL team organization where compliments were rare and politics were thick. Okay. And I looked back over 21 years and looked at the promotions and the grants and the options and the, you know, the few compliments I got. And sadly, I realized after working 30 years, I was only good at four things. And what it basically said is, where do I get my passion? Where do I add value to an organization that's transferable? And it, and it led me down different paths. And I shared it with nine perfect strangers just to say, does this make sense? And they said, you know, when you explain this, you're so passionate, you need to find a way to, to, to bring those four key attributes to a job. And it, I've never been as happy in my life. And in, I've had I've had five jobs in 15 years after that, and I've started three companies in the last three years, and I bought a company, all because my passion leads me to, to use those key attributes. Gary, that's an amazing and, story. So, Don, you must just be salivating at this. Yeah. So, five jobs in 15 years. I'm just I'm checking my stats just to make sure that that 4.2 is <laughs> is resonating. But uh, yeah, that that's awesome, Gary. So. I'm just curious what those four attributes are. Um, 
Well, first of all, I'll give you the statistic. I'm a private company CFO, kind of a turnaround entrepreneurial guy. And um, when I started being a private company CFO 16 years ago, the average tenure of a CFO was, was 84 months. It's now under 30 months. That's a huge change. It's a huge change, and there's a lot of reasons for it, okay? So, but the four key attributes were, and you sit back, and like everybody in the senior role can do a budget, can close the books, can talk to a banker, can talk to the board, can analyze results. My God, we, we've been doing that for 20 years. So I sat back and said, what am I good at? I'm a cross-functional, well, first of all, I'm a data-driven, fact-based, analytical person who can not only determine the alternatives, make the recommendation, and I will actually, actually execute it if nobody else knows how to. I'll stand up and walk the talk. Okay. Second one was um, I'm a cross-functional uh, leader who's trained in business process. So I can actually walk, walk analyses and solutions and train people across any organization, even though I'm close to CFO. And I was fortunate to spend three years of my life doing that under duress. So I got pretty good at it. Okay. Number four, for as much as I talk, I'm a ridiculously good listener, and I very quickly get to the what the factor is, and people trust me. So it's rare, you know. You don't trust the CFO, okay? And yet people do. Now, trust most people you. are afraid of the CFO. Yeah, they pretty much are. We have the money, we have the power, we got an ugly stick, okay? So you know, you know my charming personality doesn't offset that, okay? And, and the last one is I care about people, and uh, it, again, it didn't it didn't fit. And, and, and where it led me, the obvious question, where did it lead you to, is I created the brand of CFO Plus. And what it basically said is I will come in your private company and I'll do all the finance stuff and accounting stuff as expected, upper, you know, par excellence, okay? And then, but number two is I will, and picture I'm talking to the CEO or the owner, and it's basically whatever you do now that takes you away from your core competency, which is probably sales, product development, or operations to be the top dog, okay? However many hours you spend a week fooling around with HR, fooling around with compliance, looking at benefit plans, looking at supply chain, I'll just take whatever you're doing now off your desk and give you 10, 15, 20 hours to do what you want to do. And if it means playing golf or going to the beach with your kids, knock yourself out. You're my boss. I'll be your wingman, your co-pilot, and I'll take whatever you're doing now. And then with all humility, I'll find the gaps in the process and I'll improve it. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you 15 hours of your life to do what you should do and enjoy yourself. And I'll, I, I will not break what you're currently doing and I will probably improve it. Significantly. I could use one of those in my life. Yeah. So, so Gary, I wanna I wanna pull out um, a couple of things about what you're saying. I think one of the things that you did is you looked at these these four attributes, and you created this brand of CFO Plus, and it's it's probably not a traditional type of CFO, and I think that's an important thing for career. Mm-hmm. Uh, professionals to understand is that I get a lot of, you know, clients or students coming to me saying, what's the traditional career path or what do people in my role typically go on to do? And they don't often like my answer, which is anything. And, you know, in one, on one hand, that's really exciting because you don't have to be in a set career path. But on the other hand, it's very difficult because people like the structure of saying, okay, I have these options and this is going to get me to these places. But like we were talking about earlier, these career paths are getting blown apart. And now a lot of different jobs can lead to a lot of different ladders. The other thing you're talking about is what I call professional energy. And I talk about this in the book, how to understand what your four or three or two or 10 attributes are. What is your professional energy? And a lot of people struggle with this because we've heard this advice, which I'm not a fan of, which is follow your passion and the money will come. Well, you know what? That's not exactly true. Yes, you should be passionate and find meaning in your career. But if you think about the three globes we talked about earlier, skills, interests, and market, sometimes your passion, there's no market for it. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be able to earn a living, and maybe those things should should stay hobbies. Sometimes, you know, your passion, you don't have the ability to do it for whatever reason, and, and it, you're not going to get to a point where it's going to get you where you want to be. So you really do have to be realistic. So professional energy is really the combination of those three interest, skills, and market, and saying, you know, what 5 to 10% of 
my job do I love that I want to grow that I want to do more of and you know what do I want to do less of similar to what you said I, I don't want to do these things for a dollar so I think your process is spot on with with kind of how we have people go through this in the book and it sounds like you've been super successful in moving to that so congrats yeah and Gary I, 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 process, I whatever stuff I didn't like to do I got it to be very, very efficient and then could delegate it. So I eliminated 20 hours of work of my, off my desk a week, which allowed me to do other things. Right, and it I sounds would, like you're doing... Efficiency drove it phenomenally well. Yeah, and it sounds like you're doing that for other people. So, Gary, A, kudos to you. B, thank you for calling in and thank you for being a listener. The show is here for you, too. Um, and we really appreciate it. So, by the way, if anybody else would like to join in, share their stories, ask Dawn questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, Dawn, there was something that in Gary's story that also really struck me, which was that he knew how to break down where these unique values were that he mm -hmm. could bring to a potential employer mm -hmm. into four elements. But it wasn't four words. It wasn't even four sentences. There were bigger concepts embedded in there. Mm -hmm. So it's both a testimony to Gary's clarity and how he broke them down and communicated. But I was wondering if you can help translate, how do we do that for ourselves? Mm -hmm. How do we group these things? Like when you were talking about the Who Am I exercise, yep. which was columns of different themes. Can, do you remember offhand what the tops of those columns were? I do. They were your key titles. So what are the roles you've had? And if you had a, a wonky title, just, you know, use the use the generic broad form of it. They were your key accomplishments, your key expertise, and then your personal values. And you map all of these things out and you lay them out. I mean, I go way back. I even go back to what I was doing in college and all these things because at a time there, I had an interest in it. And, you know, those things don't tend to go away. They might morph. So you look at all of these things. But I, I think one of the things that you can do very easily right now from where you are is to just think about an accomplishment or achievement um, and and it might be on your your uh, who I am map and it, you know if it's not you want to add it but and then really dig down into what did I do that really energized me and and to really think down into was it the time pressure that really energized me was it working on a collaborative team that really energized me was it traveling to different client sites and getting to meet different people that really energized me was it solving the impossible puzzle because I think if you start looking at your biggest accomplishments and the pieces where you get lost you're going to start to see those themes and patterns in a similar way that that Gary did so he realized that it's the data it's the data driven the results oriented that really drove me it was it was working cross-functionally I really love that aspect and if that was taken out of my job I wouldn't be as interested mm -hmm. so I think we can all do this in our current jobs and you might discover that 90% of the things you're doing you love which is great or right. <laughs> maybe not right which also really struck me I love to think things I will never do again for money mm -hmm. and how as we're thinking about switching Yes. What advice for you, for us do you have on the things we don't like about work? Yes. So one of the challenges that people have when they're making a career switch, and it goes back to that identity, is that sometimes some of our biggest accomplishments that, that we put a lot of time and effort in and we identify with are not what our new audience wants to see. So I can give you a quick example of working with somebody who worked in a pharma company, had a PhD, was on the clinical side and wanted to switch to the business side. And of course, a PhD is a great accomplishment and you know a lot of hours time and and helpful in pharma but that that's what this person was leading off with but that's not what her audience who was on the corporate side wanted to see they wanted to see strategy and finance and operations and so by by removing this from the front and center and putting those skills up front and center that were more appealing to the audience, this person actually was able to get in front of the decision maker. So I think people need to remember that sometimes the things that you might be best at and you might look at as having an expertise, if you don't want to do those anymore, don't lead off with those. <laughs> There's also a section that kind of overlaps a little bit mm -hmm. with some things that we have to come to terms with. Yes. You have a great chapter in the book. It's not fair. Yes. <laughs> and well, you know, at Women at Work, we talk about lots of things that aren't fair. You're talking about things that, that are, it's not dependent on gender. These are just some realities mm -hmm. about the job switching process. It's true. Can you talk us through some of this reality? Yes. There's there's a whole chapter on it's not fair because it's, it's very true. And I think once you can accept that, you know, it's not fair that the younger person 
got the the promotion. It's not fair that the person with less tenure didn't get laid off. It's not fair. You know, there's a lot of things in the job search process and in business that just aren't fair. And when you focus on trying to make these right, you're using that finite energy against something you can't control. So the book really talks about, yeah, you're going to come across these situations, but you have to focus on what you can control and change it rather than trying to change what's fair. And hey, if you're a switcher and you get hired, guess what? Somebody else is going to say that's not fair. So stop using it as a barrier and start using it to your advantage. And also something my mother once said to me, she's like, get the job. And then once you're in the role, you can change things from there. Yep. But you can't change it until you're in the role. Exactly. So if you're seeing some bigger picture things that don't feel right, Part of it is just being realistic and know it, know that's what's going on as you're going through the job search mm-hmm. process. Well said. Well said. Okay. So now I want to talk about a gendered issue. Okay. So um, in particular, we see lots of people, men and women, who may be switching careers, switching roles, and no longer aligning with gender norms. Mm-hmm. So you may have, in unfortunately in many fields, women programmers or CFOs or a male executive assistant or nurse. People where, you know, if you were given the flashcards, most people's subconscious biases would not align, mm-hmm. you know, that gender and that profession. Given the processes that our resumes and that our outreach goes through, are, do you have any suggestions for people who are trying to switch careers where their own identity may not align in the subconscious of the people reviewing them so that they can kind of get past that hurdle? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, and that's kind of the whole concept of switchers. And so we're talking in this particular example about gender, but the whole idea of switchers is that the person on the other side of the desk is coming in with a bias, with a stereotype. And, you know, whatever their – what I call confirmation bias um, – you know, they look at you and their first thing is you're not a fit because you don't look like an X. Right. And so everything they're going to look for in the evidence is going to support that. And this is where your network can be extraordinary because your network is one of those 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 core tools that's going to get you beyond the bias. Mm-hmm. Because if that lead off is, hey, you've got to talk to my colleague who is is smart, agile, hungry for this, and you know you go in with this positive, then all of the other things that are biased, whether it's a, the, not the right title, not the right gender, not the right insert, you know, age, there's right. so many of them, that those are going to fall away because now the bias is towards, hey, this is a great candidate. So now now it's switched where you have to prove prove that wrong. And so that's what you want to do. You want to create a positive confirmation bias so that you can come in and already be on that side of the positive yeah, I spin. saw it play out in an interesting way where um, uh, some colleagues of mine had um, hired a graphic designer at my recommendation. And somebody I've worked with for a long time, and I know he's superb. And it had all been virtual, all the communication. And they were shocked to find out how much older he was than Mm -hmm. they were. Because their bias about a designer was that it was, to them, a young, hip person. Mm -hmm. And while he's totally hip, he's not young. But it's his experience is part of what makes him so good. And his ability to manage a creative team that makes him so strong and makes the product so strong. But had he been interviewed, he would have been um, pushed aside Mm -hmm. because he didn't match that bias. Well, he actually probably wouldn't even have gotten to the interview if he had applied online because, you know, it's pretty easy to do a math on the do the math on the resume and to be like, this is you know, this doesn't fit. And so I think that's one of the things that, that that It's Not Fair chapter really addresses. You can get mired down in that. You could say, well, yeah, people are biased against me because of my age or because of my gender or because you know I've been out of the workforce. And it's really easy to, to suck all your energy into that. But forget that. You know, Find the strategy that works for you, whether it's finding the right culture, using your network, engaging the tools in the book. Because here's the thing. You're always going to face bias somewhere, somehow, by some audience. And you need to find ways to get around that, not get dragged down by it. Right. And so in this case, it it seems like you've talked before with us about the importance of networking Mm -hmm. because it's not, it's our, it's those loose ties that actually get you Mm -hmm. the opportunity to be interviewed. Yes. And so here, this is another case where when we're switching and it's not just by virtue of the fact that our career 
history does not match up with that job, even though our abilities may be great for it, mm-hmm. but it may also be our identity. Yes. Those loose ties can go a long way to getting us seen and heard. And in, in, yes, exactly. You, your network, and that's why you have to make sure they see you. And especially if you're a switcher, you're rebranding. Whether you've been investing in a brand or not, guess what? You are You branded. have one anyway. You have one. Because people are taking into account your, your actions, who you associate with, how you show up, how you approach your work, and they've created a brand for you. So if your connections aren't aware of your switch and your new brand, those those weak ties aren't going to be very helpful to you because they're going to still be talking about you as your old brand. So that's another reason why you've got to get in front of the people who care about you and support you and make sure they know what you do, where your value is, and where you're going. Right. I'll give you an example. It was actually Patty, our producer, ran mm-hmm. into a, a, somebody I went to elementary school with. Mm-hmm. We were in kindergarten together. And when she told him that, oh, yeah, I work with Laura on business radio, he's like, wasn't she all about the arts? Yes, but, you know, that was mm-hmm. four or five careers ago. Yep. And you could see how by disconnect, he, there was no connection of ties yep. with my work history. So how would he have known if somebody else didn't make it visible to mm-hmm. him? Yep. So that's an easy thing you could do today. Make sure all the people who care about you know what you're doing and where you want to go. It also seems like there's another section of your book about this that can be really important, which is creating ambassadors. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about what ambassadors are, how you find them, how you work with them. Yes. So I know people don't like the word networking and I'm not trying to shift that word. It's got, it's got, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it's about building relationships and creating ambassadors is creating this, this pool of people who can be out there introducing you to others. They can be out there talking about the value that you add that can be out there reading the, the newspaper and finding these articles that they think you might be interested in because they know enough about you to bring you back what's, what's interesting. And this is where the opportunities come, these ambassadors. And, you know, it is about the relationship piece because even if you're meeting somebody for the first time, one of the things we're taught to do is open with our pitch, our 30-second pitch. And I, I dislike that, too, because the <laughs> fact is – Yeah, yeah. The, the, well, this, again, goes back to the psychology. Evolutionary-wise, we are – you know, way back when, we had to, to trust somebody before we cared about what their skills are. We have to trust you not to rob us before we care that you're a great hunter and can provide for our tribe. And this is still very deeply ingrained in us. So we have to like you. There has to be a likability, a trust factor before we even care about what you do and what value you have. to feel safe with you. We do have to feel safe. So when you dive right into a new person with, here's what I'm great at, whoa, you haven't spent any time building that trust. And you're also coming off, here's what I want you to do for me, Mm -hmm. not here's how I understand you, see you, or want to support you. Exactly. People People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care, which is a quote that I love. I love that. I love that too. We should tweet that out. That's a really good <laughs> tweet one. That out. Um, but that's just it. You know, you got to stop going to these events. Sure. You got to get around to what you do and, and that, but that will come out in conversation. If you're curious and genuinely interested in other people, they are going to be more open to hearing about your skills and abilities and what you want to do. So you've got to make it a two-way street. Okay. So some really important takeaways with this. One is that, you know, networking is crucial to this process Mm -hmm. and that there's layers to this networking. Mm -hmm. So part of it is starting with those closest to us, at least letting the people where messaging is not complicated. Mm -hmm. We, they already love us. They're not surprised from here from us. They'll open our emails and to say, Hey, this is what's going on with me. Yes. Just wanted you to know, if you hear of anything, send it my way. And that doesn't have to be a job opportunity. No. That can also be something you can learn from. In mm-hmm. fact, that might even be the ideal thing to ask for. Mm-hmm. Who do you know that I can learn from, that I can connect with to, you know, get me closer to that goal, but not find me a job. Yeah. And, you know, there's several layers of networking. I mean, one is, you know, who's kind of in your circle, but you also have to be thinking about your future and where you're going and who's going to be helpful to to that next level, you know, or who can you help to that next level, but also getting outside of like, you know, maybe you're great at networking internally, but you don't network outside your company. And so, you know, you have to really look at all aspects of your network and say, am I building a broad network? And one of the things you can do, if you feel comfortable with your, your, 
your close ties, start to ask them for introductions. Those seven level, second level contacts can be so powerful because, you know, I can think of people who are just super connectors and you can get one connection on LinkedIn who's very well connected, which opens a completely new world to you, which can, you know, change your life. Right. And as an example, um, one of um, my most respected faculty colleagues um, said to me, there's this amazing woman. She works for me. She's curious about higher ed. Would you talk to her? Mm -hmm. And she came in to talk to me. And while the ask was for me to help educate her, I met this amazing young woman. I'm like, hmm, where could I put her to use? Yes. Who else might be able to use her? And it was and it was all well worth the 20 minutes I spent with her. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you get in the habit of, of doing that regularly, and I know people, oh, I don't have time or this, that, but you don't have to do it every day. Sometimes it can be a 15-minute phone call. Sometimes you just take advantage of the situation you're in. You know, are you, are you showing up to events 15 minutes early so you can talk to people or staying 15 minutes after to talk to people? Are you walking down the hallway in your, in your office and meeting new people? I mean, these opportunities are everywhere. And if you just take 15 minutes a day, you'd be shocked at how that return on investment starts to come up in your life. Also, one of the things I know about a lot of women that I meet that we read about is that they'll be endlessly generous in helping other people mm-hmm. and um, reluctant to network themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of the people who have mentored others, is it appropriate to reach out to the people that you've mentored to let them know what you're looking for or to ask for their connections? Absolutely. And I think we all know this deep down. I mean, when you describe that, I'm like, oh my God, you're describing me. Yes, I know. Asking <laughs> for help. No, no, I, I'm a helper. I don't ask for help. But we have to start getting comfortable with that because here's here's the challenge. People want to help us and we feel good. Think about how good it feels to help somebody do them the favor of giving them that opportunity to. I think the key is we have to be clear with our ask. I think that's a lot of the reason that we are um, hesitant to do it because we're not sure what we want. And I think we also have to ask the person for something they can actually help us with. So when you tap into somebody's expertise, it actually feels really good. Right. And so especially as we're reaching out as switchers, um, to get information about new industries, new jobs, new ways of working, tapping into the people we've mentored, maybe younger than us, they may have less experience mm-hmm. in the workplace at large, but they may know a lot more about that environment than we do at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's also a way of showing them we respect them to reach out and say, what can I learn? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm learning so much about social media from <laughs> from people who are younger than me because I definitely respect their, their ability to catch on much more quickly than I do. And it also keeps those relationships warm and alive. Mm-hmm. So whether you're going to partner on something together, whether they're going to turn you in, like, help connect you with somebody, or you're going to ultimately hire them in another way. Yeah. It's just broadening the circle of talent. And thinking long term, I, I can't even tell you how many opportunities have come to me from something I did four years ago or, or a present, presentation I did, you know, like two years ago or or even something that, that somebody I met seven years ago who introduced me to somebody else along the way who created opportunities. I mean, when you start to look at these things, you're like, wow, all these seeds I planted over the course of my lifetime, they're going to just, you're, they're going to continue to come back to you and come up and you're going to be shocked. It's amazing. Well, Don, part of what's amazing is all those seeds in your life have come up and are now germinating in this amazing book and the work you do here at Wharton and the writing you do at large. So thank you so much for joining us on Business Radio today. Thank you, Laura. I love talking with you. If people want to find the book, where can they get it? So it's on Amazon. It's also in bookstores and other major booksellers. Fantastic. So thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us, Gary, for calling in. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 